0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, center, and source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. This morning we want to look and begin our study in First Peter. It's a beautiful book of the New Testament and one I think well worth our looking into and a life-changing kind of study. Every week we have in your homework sheet, as you will see, there is um, a missionary of the week to pray for. And this week our missionary is Jorge and Lynn Mogravejo. They're starting a seminary in Cuenca, Ecuador. And so they need our special prayers. They're Saraguro Indians that are coming. And they've never had an evangelical pastor in all the years that they've been in existence. God is beginning to move there, but there are incredible difficulties. So as you pray this week and as you and I pray for our families, let's remember to pray for Lynn and Jorge. They have one special need. They need a teacher for their children because she's trying to homeschool plus help with the administration plus hostess plus work and teach in the new seminary along with her husband. So let's ask God to lift up somebody to help carry the children's education. So we want to carry them this week. I'd like you to start by turning to First Peter, and we'll begin with the 1st first cha- first chapter, 1st first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace through God and be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though you Though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joyance inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through, through, through these who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look unto. Jesus we ask today dear precious lord Jesus that you would come and anoint your word thank you you promised that your word would not return void and we We praise you for that in advance, that even today you are going to use your word to speak to every single one of our hearts, and I pray you begin in my own life. Lord, use the word as a catalyst in our lives, in our minds, our hearts, our souls, our spirits, that we might get a deeper comprehension of who you are, a deeper comprehension of truth, and that, Lord, the the real thoughts and intents of our hearts would be laid bare before thyself so that, Lord, we could become children of thine children that are full of the love of Jesus the holiness of Jesus and the sweetness of Jesus now father we ask that you might come and teach us today surely there's no good thing in me but there's everything good in thee and we wait together as sisters at thy feet And we ask that you might open up the word to our souls. So when we leave this place, we will say it has been good to be with Jesus and be with sisters who love him. Now, Lord, we do pray for Lynn and Jorge today. We pray, Father, you would provide for them, you would encourage them, you would provide a teacher to help with the children's education, and that, Lord Jesus, you would anoint that seminary in this ancient city in Ecuador, and that, Lord, the world would be different because of their ministry there. And we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel a real urgency as we enter into the new year. I feel that Jesus is asking us in new ways for a real seriousness about our walk and our commitment to him. It seems like that you and I live in an age that's sick and dying in need of a resurrected Savior. And I feel a little bit like Nero's playing the violin while Rome is burning. And that we need to get as seriousness as women about our lives and about our walk with God. So I've as we've thought and prayed over the New Year, even in our time together, we want to center around Jesus. And he gave me two verses for the New Year. One, Matthew eighteen one, Women ought always to pray and not to faint. Because in the middle of Christmas preparations, I was fainting. And I said, Oh, Jesus, what do I do here? And he said, Don't faint, just pray. Just depend on me. The second thing was the transfiguration. And remember, after... Jesus showed him who he really was and Peter, Andrew, Peter, James and John were there and they fell on their faces and Jesus came to him it says and he touched them and he said arise do not be afraid and when they lifted up their eyes they saw Jesus only and I think that is a cry in my heart this semester that we would see Jesus only Now, I would like to say to you, we don't want to look to Beth or to team or to your small group leader. We want to look to Jesus because none of us have it all together. The only one that has it all together is Jesus. And the deeper you get to know me, the more you're going to say, oh, what a little fragmented pot. And it is the honest truth. But the beautiful thing is the transcendent power of the Holy Spirit dwells in little fragmented pots 2 Corinthians 4 1 so that do you know what happens there's hope for me and there's hope for you and I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus but Jesus has good news for you he loves you loves you loves you loves you this much more than that enough to die for you and he has a plan and purpose for your life and for my life and no matter what your past is your future can be different because jesus is with you so let us get a seriousness i want a seriousness about the word Your small group leaders are going to ask you, what was your quiet time like this week? Whether you're in prayer share, whether you're in accountability, because we will do you an injustice if we do not emphasize a walk with God. Because some of you are leaving May, and you're going to be on the front line, and we will do you an injustice if we do not prepare you for a time every single day to meet Jesus Christ. You will be shot out of the water in couple years, maybe not even that long, if you do not nail down your time with God. That's why those homework sheets are there. They are just to begin to get you. You go through them every day. And if that's not enough, you say, I need more, and we'll get you more. You begin to get in the Word every single day. And then say to in your small group, what does Jesus say to you? Your teacher is going to say, what did he say out of your devos? And then what did he say to you in Bible study? And how are you going to apply those to your life? And I don't apologize for that. Because it's a little bit like parents. We will do an injustice to our children if we do not train them to pass from dependence on us to dependence on Jesus Christ. And it's almost like our setting in Wilmore is a little bit like the womb. Because it's difficult to live in one more. And you have much more month than money. And you have an absentee husband. And there are problems and pressures. But you do have a small group leader or a gal in your small group. Or a, you could call me or you can call this one. There is someone who can comprehend where you are. But you may be going to some place where there's not another Christian where you are. And so you need to begin to cultivate time with Jesus now because he will be wherever you are. And so there's an urgency on my heart that we will do you a grave injustice if we do not tighten the belt around and say, Lord, you help us to get serious about knowing God. And then we want to spend time in our small groups. The other thing is I think we need to learn to intercede and pray. Tuesday, there's prayer at my house, 10 o'clock to 11.30. There's early morning prayer Friday morning at 6 o'clock at Hughes around the altar. There's prayer meeting. You can pray if you want to in your small groups. Divide up and have prayer partners so that every one of you come next week with having prayed with someone during the week. Let's begin to fast. Let's uh, some form of self-denial on Tuesdays to prepare our hearts. For, for next for the next day to get our hearts so as we come in here and Sue begins to play that um, Susan begins to play that flute and and Chan um, begins to play that beautiful piano our hearts are ready and we are sitting here saying Jesus what do you have to say to me today don't let me go the same way let me go back to Japan or Tonga or let me go back to Australia or let me go to Illinois or let me go to Lexington or Wilmore but let me go back different Not the same. And God can turn the world upside down. He did it before with 12 men. What could he do with 80 women? I think he just wants to do it. And I think we want to come today and say, Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. So let's look at the word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... Peter is a sent one. What does apostle mean? It is a, He is a sent one. And there's something about Peter's writing. Peter does not need to validate who he is. The church, Paul has to kind of gain a reputation because Paul came as one lately born. But Peter was there from the very beginning when the disciples were were first called, there was Peter and he was the leader of the band of the disciples. Even Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the, the beautiful thing we see in the apostle Peter is what God can do in the life of of one man. And I challenge you this week even to read in the, like the book of Mark and see Peter before Pentecost, then read the book of Acts, see Peter after Pentecost, and then read the study of first Peter. And what you get is the tremendous anointing of a man fully surrendered to the will of God and a man who has come to the cross and died. And so we see here Peter is a sent one from Jesus Christ, that's all he says, that's all he needs to say. The church knew who he was, he was the one who had walked with God, with Jesus. But there is hope for you and I because he was also the one that had denied Jesus. How many times? Not once, not twice, but three times he had denied the Lord Jesus. But yet God did not scrap him into a scrap heap, but he said, There's still hope for you, Jesus. Still hope for you, Peter. Even on you, I can build my church. So the God, is, God is the one of great hope. Another theme in First Peter is hope. Hope. Tremendous Hope. So that he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. God wants to make you and I apostles of Jesus Christ. Sent ones. Sent ones to the nursery. Sent ones to our little family. Sent ones to making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Sent ones to the play school. Sent ones to pick up our kids after school. And that there would be a fragrance about our lives wherever we are that would speak of Jesus Then he says to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I don't know why, but I love that verse. Because who is he writing to? Pilgrims, people that are far away from home. They said there were about a million Jews in Jerusalem, but there were two to four million that were spread all throughout the Roman world. And these were Jews that are in present-day Turkey right now, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And they were homesick. They were, And a pilgrim is someone who is seeking for the celestial city, a sojourner, one that is in transition, one that is not home. How applicable for those of us who are in Wilmore, Kentucky. How many of us are far from where we grew up? How many of us are pilgrims even in this place? But yet he says they're pilgrims and they were homesick. And they were alone and they were in very difficult circumstances. They were getting ready to face the persecution. And some of the most awful persecution the church has ever had to undergo, they were getting ready to face. Even Peter himself faced under Nero. And so that we, so you get Peter's book that is preparing the church for a baptism of suffering. And that's another theme in the book, a key theme. What do you do? And it doesn't talk here. Ten times it says the word Pasqua, which is for suffering. Four times it gives a a derivation of that. It doesn't mean illness. It means outside pressure that was coming in on the people. The trials, the tribulations, the persecution, the outside forces that were coming on God's people. One of the reasons was because they were pilgrims who were saying, this world is not my home. I am pressing through. I am going on to another home. I am a a person that has a hope that's built on Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful introduction. In this introduction, how many parts of the Trinity are mentioned? All three. So he says, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Do you know how many times God the Father is mentioned in this little book? 39. So what he's saying to these people that are, bo- are homesick, that are, are, are away from their roots, that are in alien situation and suffering persecution, he is saying, you are not a victim of fate. But there is a loving Heavenly Father that I am mentioning 39 times in this book to say that God is in control and He loves and cares for you, even though the circumstances may seem out of control. And then he says that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now as a a Wesleyan, an elect here, I don't think means that you're elect that God says I damn you and I elect you to go to heaven and you're damned. I don't think that's consistent with for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. I do not see. what I think it means here is that God in his foreknowledge knows the choices you will make the choices I will make, the choices you will make, the choices we will make whether we will walk with God or whether we will not walk with God. And that those choices, God knows what you will decide and what I will decide. And do you know it is the little bitty choices of your life and my life that are the ones that change our lives? I heard recently a preacher of the gospel said, one of the noblest decisions I ever made in my life I made was when I was in 10th grade. And he said, I was reading the novel that my teacher had suggested. And I loved and respected my teacher, and it was a well-known novel of the time, and she wanted me to read it and, and to write a report on it. And so I was excited, and I went home and began to read it, and all of a sudden I became very uncomfortable with what I was reading. And the Lord said to me, You don't need this into your computer. And I said, Well, Jesus, what will I tell my English teacher? Just tell her you can't read it. And he said, It was one of the major decisions of my life. (laughs) And I went back to that teacher and said, Would you mind? I'd rather not read this. Do you have another book you could recommend for me? I feel checked in my spirit. And I think that's what Peter is talking about here when he talks about holiness of heart. Be ye holy just as I am holy, as God is holy. Because it's in the nuances of life, it's in the little bitty decisions of your life and my life, that God comes in and God is able to make us a people that reflect the character and the image of Jesus Christ. And he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And in our homework sheets, one of the sheets has a thing on Tozer, that says what are you putting in your mind what do you love most of all where does your money go where does your time go you and I, and then in this week it talks about the wesley's 22 things he asked the, in the holy club every day you read those and get gut level honest and say god what am i doing with my life and what am i doing in my little decisions am i choosing you Am I choosing the best way, or am I only choosing the good way or the inferior way? It will make all the difference in the effectiveness of your life for God. Then he says according to the sanctification of the Spirit. That's what we're talking about. That the Spirit comes in and sensitizes you and I in our small choices. And the Spirit comes and sanctifies our heart and fills us with Himself so that you and I on a daily basis do not have to fight every day to say, will I do it God's way or will I do it best way? But there will come a crisis in our life where you can say, Jesus, I surrender everything to you and I will to do your will even if it feels like i will die and that's what the cross is all about that there comes a place not death to who you are but death to your self-will and my self-will and that you and i are filled with this holy spirit and when that the chips are down if there's a way to go we say i will go god's way even if it looks like it's to my own personal detriment he said, sanctified by the Spirit. How do you know if you're sanctified by the Spirit? How do I, I know? For obedience to Jesus Christ. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sanctification works itself out in obedience. It works itself out in an obedient lifestyle. Are you and I obeyers? Are we obeying Him? Or are we doing it in our own way? He says we are obedient. I love this. There are ten quotes from the Old Testament in this little book. There's over twenty one allusions to the Old Testament. This is alluding back to Exodus twenty four. Remember when they had Sinai, they had the, and he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. Then he gave them all the various. Um, particulars about the law, how to treat your servant, how to treat each other, all these very specialized things on how to relate one to the other as God's holy people. And then at the end he said, L- we have a blood covenant. And so Moses built an altar, then he had two basins and he put blood in the two basins he put some of the blood on the altar and then he sprinkled the blood on the people and the people said all that God has said to us we will do and there was a sprinkling of the blood and the covenant was sealed between the holy God and his holy people And see, that's what God's wanting in your life. That the blood of Jesus Christ would be sprinkled on your heart and on my heart. On your life and on my life. So there would be a separateness about us. That there's some things we cannot do. Not because it's written and it's the law, but because we are bound by a love relationship to the eternal God. And we would rather die than sin against Him. I remember Steve Clark from Australia said to you, me, "There's a difference between do I not obey? Do I obey the Ten Commandments because it's the law, or do I obey the Ten Commandments Do I obey the Ten Commandments because I don't want to disobey them because it would grieve the heart of Jesus, and I'd rather do anything than grieve the heart of Jesus." That's sanctification. That's where you've moved in, not to legalism, but you've moved into a love relationship so that you and I are beginning to love Jesus' heart, mind, soul, and spirit, which is the first commandment. Have you been sprinkled by the blood? It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse from all unrighteousness. Nothing is too big. But as we start a new year, we need to search our hearts and say, Jesus, have you sprinkled me with your blood? Have we entered into that blood covenant that cost you your life so that all of me is all of yours and so that my life is all yours and that your Holy Spirit resides inside me? Then he said, if you and I are living like that, what are the fruits of it? Grace and peace. (laughs) Grace for difficult children. Grace for grumpy husbands. Grace for mama-in-laws. Grace for mamas. Grace for neighbors. Grace for hard professors. Grace for grumpy bosses. And peace. He's believing that Jesus is in control Jesus loves me and Jesus is caring for me and all I have to do today is love Jesus and follow my shepherd if you could characterize your life and my life what are the attributes are grace and peace there are we walking in obedience to him and in a love relationship to him so that out of our life grace and peace flow that's what we, That's where we can live. That's where He died for us to live. Then it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. So what are the characteristics of the people of God? They're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, they're sanctified by the Spirit, produces obedience within them, that we are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ and that we're people that have a hope. And what is our hope based on? It's a living hope that is based on Jesus Christ who was crucified, buried, and is risen again. We don't worship Confucian. We don't worship Muhammad. We don't worship a dead God. We worship a God who is living and who is providing for us. And it even gets better. Do you know what it says? We have an inheritance. Not only do we have a living hope, Jesus is living and Jesus is coming back. That's mentioned twice in these few 12 verses. Jesus is living. He died and He is resurrected. He is coming back. That's the basis of our hope. But you and I have an inheritance. This isn't all there is. We're sojourners here because the best is yet to come. Now what kind of inheritance is it? It's an inheritance that's incorruptible. It's permanent. It doesn't, it's undefiled, it's pure, and it's unfading, it doesn't wear out. So that it's an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. And what does it say about it? I love this part. And it is reserved in heaven for my next door neighbor. It is reserved in heaven for my preacher husband. It is reserved in heaven for the saints of the past. No, it is reserved for you. It is reserved for me. It is reserved for us. He has an inheritance for us that is waiting for us. And we live on a daily basis with a living hope. This is not all there is. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We can't even imagine. So then in comparison, the conflicts, the trials, the sufferings, and the persecution cannot even be compared with all that Jesus has for us, not just for a little while, but for eternity. And it is reserved for you. And then it even gets better. Not only it is reserved for you, but we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. You and I don't have to fear about losing our faith. We have that choice. We can say Jesus, I don't, I, I don't want to walk the walk anymore. But we do not have to live there that way. There is power to keep you in Wilmore. There's power to keep me in Wilmore, on fire, white hot for God. There's power to keep you in Cincinnati. There's power to keep you when you leave here. There is power to keep you and to keep me until Jesus Christ comes back again and takes us to Himself. We don't have to live backslidden lives. We don't have to live just down and depressed. We don't have to live that way. The power's there. And I love the verse in Second Peter where it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him who has called us. Jesus has the power to keep us today. So that if you're floundering, say, I don't have to flounder one more minute. Jesus died for me, and He can keep me, and write your name right by that verse and say, "I refuse to flounder. Jesus is the great keeper. He can keep me. He, and that's where the power of the body is. When you are floundering, you call that best friend and say, "Today, would you just pray with me?" ple rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have received the, tempt, ver, re, you are grieved through various trials. This is the Christian's way to cope with trauma and suffering that that the world knows nothing about. And at times in my life, I know nothing about. What is the response to it? Rejoicing. Why? Because what happens when you and I get under the fire? We begin to know who we really are and what dross is in there that needs to come up. We begin to know who he is and his ability to meet us in our most difficult hour. And then we begin to know an awareness of some of the tactics of the evil one and that we don't have to succumb to the same tactics he uses on us time after time after time after time. So we can begin to see his tactics and think, oh no, I am kept by the power of God. I do not have to submit to this harassment one more time. In the name of Jesus, I just come against the enemy. You set me free, Jesus, and give me different responses, godly responses, to this situation, to this person. Instead of reacting to them, that I begin to to embrace you in the midst of the difficulties. And do you know what will happen? That will give us cause for rejoicing because we will know God in deeper, more intimate ways than we've ever known Him before. So that suffering can be used by God. So we get to the place where we're not looking to God's gifts, but we're looking to the giver. And that we're looking to God Himself. And we understand that God is better than all His gifts. But constantly that's difficult. We constantly move away from that. But it's the heart cry of all of us. Then he says, when we do learn how to embrace him in our difficulties, do you know what will happen? It says, we will be tested like gold. And we will come forth as gold. And we will be found for praise, honor, and glory when Jesus comes back again. So when Jesus comes, they'll say, Yabba Dabba Doo! (laughs) Look what you let me do in and through you. Praise, honor, and glory to Jesus would flow out of our lives. And that our faith would be more precious than gold. Remember in Amy Carmichael and Gold Cord, she took her children to the marketplace and there was the gold, the the refiner of gold, and he sat there, and he had a little pot, and he had the fire, and they watched as the gold was in it, and it bubbled and bubbled and bubbled, and she turned to him, and she said, When do you know the gold is pure? And he said, When I can see my face in it. Do you know when Jesus knows whether your life and my life is pure? is when the reflection that he sees in your life and mine is himself. And not only Jesus sees that, but family members begin to see it, even husbands, even children, that our responses begin to be more like him and not so much like Grumpy Beth. That's what God wants to do with us. We don't have to live below our privileges. Let us this new year embrace Jesus in all his fullness and say, Lord, I want the liberty that you can offer to set me free. That's what holiness of heart is. It's perfect freedom to say, Jesus, not my will, but thine be done in my heart. And then it goes and says, even though you haven't seen him, that you can believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible joy receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls to start out living for Jesus God wants the salvation of your soul and my soul but do you know we have a cheap gospel in the USA today it says if you pray a little prayer that you get your name written down in this book and you can live just any way you want to live and when the great judgment day comes you'll just get in no matter how you've lived and it's a lie because scripture says without holiness no man shall see the Lord And you and I need to get to the place the salvation of our souls is not a cheap experience that costs us nothing. The salvation of our souls costs God everything. It costs the blood of Jesus. And if you and I are going to know that salvation, it is going to cost us everything. It is going to cost my life, my self-will, my agenda, my appetites, my time, my family, My children, all of them surrendered to the will of God. And He alone is able to take care of them. To keep not only you, but to keep me. So that someday you and I can get to heaven and receive that inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. Now I feel today that Jesus wants me to close with a story. And I am I'd like you to hear this out because I think some of us keep going with God when it's convenient but to really die to self we keep trying we keep thinking we will we keep attempting but to really sell out to the full will of God and let God be God in our lives and let Jesus reign in our hearts we haven't really ever done it all the way And this is a story, it's a secular story, but I want you to hear it today, and I want God to apply it to your heart and my heart. If there's any compromise in our lives, and if we know anything about the word commitment. This isn't original with me. A couple years ago, Cricket and Katie Beth were in college, and they came home. And I think it was Cricket, and she said, Oh, Mama, we had the best chapel speaker. And she said, you need to get that tape. And I got the tape. And the tape was by Dennis Appleby, who's with WGM. And he's, and he's an Englishman. And I was riveted. I listened to it. I don't know how many times I've listened to it. And he said, my wife and I have a wonderful custom down through the years. He said, we read together. Not that she can't read, but I read to her. And she does needlework and we've gone through many books together and many of the classics. And so one night we were planning on reading together and we had our little fire there in our trailer little, came from Sears and he said she was and I pulled out our book and she said, We can't read tonight. I've got this pressure of something in the kitchen. You've just got to read by yourself, Dennis so he was said I was all prompted to read so I thought well what will I do I don't want to go ahead so he said I reached up and got a Reader's Digest condensed pr- version of a book and was leafing through it and I found a book by A.J. Cronin called The Judas Tree and she, he said I started reading and he said I couldn't put it down it was past midnight before I finally put it down and he said God used it to speak to my heart And his message that day was on what Jesus did with the five loaves and two fish. He took them, he blessed them, he broke them, and he gave them to a lost world. I think that's what Peter's talking about. Are you willing to let God take you? Are you willing to let him bless you? Are you willing to let him break you? And are you and I willing to let God give us to a lost world? for its redemption. So he said, I sat there and read. And it's a story about a doctor. It takes place in Scotland. And his name was David Murray. And he was from a poor family or a lower income class in Scotland. And as he was getting his, um, going through his um, M.D. degree, he fell in love with a young gal whose name was Kathy. Kathy. And, uh, excuse me, her her name was Mary. And he said they were engaged to be married. And she was a beautiful girl, and it was like a marriage made in heaven. And he said he was an ambitious man, but he was a kind-hearted man. Uh, But he tended to make decisions that were in his own best interest at the time. Not based on principle, but just his own best interests at the time. So he got sick, and just before they were due to be married, he had tuberculosis, and his doctor said, You need to go on a cruise. So he said, And come back and get married after the cruise. So while they were on the cruise, there was a very wealthy man on the cruise with his wife and his very spoiled daughter, Doris. Well, he was a young, handsome man, and he was kind of the doctor of the cruise ship while he was recuperating from the tuberculosis and he was taking care of the people on this pleasure vessel. And this young, this, this older businessman who had this younger daughter took a fancy to him. And so he said, his name was Holbrook. And so he, he went to the doctor one day and he said, my daughter, Dory is really, um, kind of depressed. We brought her on this trip thinking that my humor, but she's still depressed. I just wonder if you'd be so kind just to spend a little time with her. You're young, she's young and just see if it can lift her depression. I said, well, there's no harm in that. So he began to uh, just entertain this girl. and So at every port, when he started out he'd get letters from Mary and at every port he'd send letters to Mary. But as the cruise was going around the world and it go- kept going on, he began to cultivate the relationship with Dory, who was very spoiled, very petulant, and would get, but she was very beautiful and she had lots of money. Well, one day as the cruise was coming nearer to the India, um, Holbrook said to him, "Sid said, David, I have a proposition to make to you. I can tell Dory really likes you what if you marry Dory and I'll make you a business partner with me and my pharmaceutical business and I'll give you all of Canada and it would be very good for you financially and Dory's not bad and it would give me peace of mind well he was aghast but then the more he thought about it the less he thought of his commitment to marry I mean she was far away and it just and so as he thought, and the pressure was there, and it was now, and it looked good, and he could be wealthy. So, going around the Cape of Good Hope, he married Dory. No word to marry, no nothing. And she waited, and waited, and waited in Scotland. He went to Canada, and uh, he had a miserable life. Dory ended up the last years of her life in the mental institution. But he became very wealthy. So she died young. And so he found himself a bachelor at a young age. So he left Canada and took his money and went to a villa, a chalet in Switzerland, a very beautiful place overlooking one of those lakes. And he was courted by all the wealthy women of the little village. And he lived a very good life. He gave himself to art. Gave himself to the the finer things of life Ate very well, lived very well But there was an emptiness in his heart He'd never done anything for anyone except himself Well during this time there was a woman there Who was cultivating him But he never could really see her She was a heavy kind of woman Little bit mannish, very practical, very efficient But she was wealthy as well But he wasn't drawn to her at all. So during this time he was depressed and he began to think of Mary. And he thought, I wonder if she might be free. And I wonder if she could ever forgive me. So he thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to see. So he thought, I'll just take a trip to Scotland. So he left his Swiss chalet and he went to Scotland. And he got there and looked her up and they said, oh, she married a vicar. And they live, and they have a little church down the down the couple's cities away. So he got on the train, and he went to the church, and he knocked on the door, and the and the um the the man there said, "Well, I'm sorry," he said. Before that, the, when he had first inquired, they said her husband has just died. So David was, ah, this is great. But when he got to the church and knocked, he knocked at the door, and he got in. And the man came, and he said, I'm looking for Mary, and is she here? And he said, oh, no, I have sad news to tell you. She just has died this past week. But I could take you to her grave. Well, he was shaken. So he said, yes, I would like that. So they went out to the grave, and as he knelt by the grave, he he was shaken looking at the grave of the wife that should have been the one he really did love, but he never had the gumption, to, the commitment to stick to. So he's, as he was there and he was a little bit broken, he heard a rustle behind him and he turned and looked and there was Mary. And he was just shaking and ashen. He said, well, this can't be. And the person spoke and she said, well, I kno- you must have known my mother. And he breathed a sigh of relief, and he said, Oh, I, I did. I, I was friends when she was a young woman. And she, said, and she said, Yes, I come to the grave, too. She's just died. And he said, Well, who are you? He said. She said, Well, I'm her daughter, Kathy. Oh, he said. And she was a beautiful young girl and looked just like her mother. So she said, I know it's not, um, I don't want to be out of order, but you seem so shaken. Would you want to come to tea? And I could tell you some about my mother. Oh, yes, he liked that. So they went to her flat, and he noticed there was nothing in her flat. It was almost bare. And as she was fixing tea, he said, well, are you going someplace? She said, oh, yes, I am. She said, my, my uncle is a missionary in Africa, Uncle Willie. And she said, I'm a nurse, and I'm going to Africa because I don't have any family now. My dad's dead, my mom's dead, and I'm going to Africa. And I just, I'm, I just sold all my things, and I'm just waiting now to finish up my things to go. Oh, so they had tea, and then he said to her, Have you had a holiday before you go? Would you ever want to? Oh, she said, I wouldn't have money for that. I'm just saving my money now to be able to get my boat ticket to Africa. Oh, he said, well, what if you go with me to Switzerland? I mean, there are lots of servants there. It wouldn't be out of order. It wouldn't be improper. I'm so much older than you are. But I could show you some of Switzerland and just spend two weeks, and it would just be a rest after all you've been through. Well, I don't know. And he prevailed upon her. So this young Kathy finds herself in the Swiss Villa being wined and dined to the max. And at the end of the two weeks, they were on the bridge overlooking the beautiful lake. And David looked at Kathy and said, Kathy, I know I'm a lot older than you, but I'd really like to make my life count for something. What, what, what if I would, we would get married and I would go with you to Africa and I could be a doctor and you could be the nurse? <gasps> she said, that would be wonderful. Uncle Willie would be so thrilled. What a contribution we could make. So right there they got engaged. And so she said, but I better go back to Scotland and finish up my affairs and then come then I'll meet you maybe we can meet in Africa and be married there so he began to get all excited he began to put his house in order he began to sell some of his beautiful paintings and some of his things and the first time in his life he began to think of someone other than David Murray and then it was one day that the lovely patronage from down the way that was David's age showed up and knocked at the door and as David was packing things in boxes and all excited, she showed up. And she said, David Murray, what are you doing? You're a fool. You are an absolute fool. You're going to give up the good life that you deserve to go to with a little slip of a girl to Africa. Are you going to give up all this for that? You're a fool. And do you know everybody in this community is thinking you and I will get married? I'm the one that should be marrying you. Not that little slip of a girl. You're a fool. And as she talked, David sat back and he thought, Well, maybe. Well, now, maybe I made a mistake. I don't want to be a fool. And maybe I shouldn't and maybe under the circumstances and maybe and Hilda the patronage from down the way said we could be married and have their wedding certificate and be married in three days and so David in true commitment fashion said oh yes and he married Hilda It wasn't much longer. A few weeks later, there was a knock at the door. And the butler came up and he said, David, he said, Dr. Moray said, the young woman, Kathy, is here to see you. And he froze. Because Hilda was cold. She was calculating. She had his his money already in her name. He was in the guest bedroom. She was in the master bedroom. I mean, he had made a major, major wrong decision, and Kilda said to him, I will take care of the door, and she went down to the door, and Kathy stood there and said, I'm I'm here, I settle my affairs, but I... But there's been a terrible thing happen and We cannot go to Africa because there's been a res- an insurrection. So I thought maybe I should just come back and we could be married here and live here until things quiet down. And Hilda drew herself up in front of the door and said, Well, I'm sorry to tell you there have been a change of plans. And said he's married. Oh, she said, I know he was married, but his wife died, but I know he's not married now. And she said, Oh, yes, he is. He's married to me. We were married two weeks ago. And she said, That can't be. He made a commitment to me. And Hilda looked at her and she said, He made the same kind of commitment to you that he made to your mother how many 26, 27 years ago. The man doesn't know what the word commitment means. Shall I show you out, or can you find your way yourself? And as Kathy staggered down the walk, she went, Hilda went back up to David Murray. That night there was a knock at the door, in the middle of the night. And the butler came and said, Dr. Moray, I'm sorry, but the constable is here, and he's at the door, and you must come. The constable was there, and he said, I'm so sorry, Dr. Moray, to get you out of bed, but there's been an accident in the lake, and I think it was a guest of yours, and I need you to identify the body. Oh, oh yes, he'd be very happy to go. Just put my clothes on. He got them on. And he went down to the morgue, And they pulled back the cloth, and there he saw the face of not just the first wife he was committed to, but the second one. And that night he staggered back up to his palatial Swiss villa. And as he walked into his bedroom, he looked out the window, and there had been planted by his gardener a very unusual tree. And he'd asked the gardener, he said, what's the name of that tree? He said, it's from the Orient, and they call it a Judas tree. I don't know quite why. And as he opened the windows and looked, he shut the windows, shut the blinds. And then the next morning, the butler came in to bring him his coffee. And he looked, and no one was in the bed and he went to open the windows as he did every morning and he looked and there on the Judas tree was David Moray and do you know what there's a lot of theology in that story whether A.J. Cronin ever knew it or not there is in every one of our hearts a Judas just as real as the Judas in scripture and in David Moray And you and I, without Jesus, do not know what the word commitment is. You and I, every time, will choose what's in it for me. How do I succeed? How do I survive? You and I are committed to our own self-interest and keeping us safe and secure. But you and I will lose our souls if that is the commitment of our hearts. And Jesus is saying... I am the only one that can take the Judas out of your heart and my heart and can put into your life commitment to me, to that husband, to those children, to those family members that are hard to get along with. I am the only one that knows anything about commitment. But the question is today, will you let Jesus come into your life And will you commit yourself to Him? Or will you spend the rest of your life making me-first choices and end up in the same or similar situation as David Murray at the end of your life with things in shambles on every front? You didn't mean it. You meant better than this. Your heart was nice. You and I need God to help us make the right decisions. Do you know anything about the word commitment? Do I? Do I? Let's go to prayer. Father, how many times we've told you, Oh Jesus, I love you. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. But then Lord, you ask us to go next door or you ask us to go up the street, or you ask us to deal with sin that we don't want to deal with, or a habit, or something that's hurting us, and we won't let go of it. And Lord, we do the same thing. We don't know anything about the word commitment. We start out with you when it's convenient, but when the going gets rough, and it violates our self-interest or our self-will, Lord, we back way away from you. Jesus we ask you in the name of Jesus O Holy Spirit come and do a work in every single heart beginning in my own that there would come in our lives the kind of commitment you put in Peter the commitment that literally went to the cross rather than deny Jesus the second time he died for you he gave his life for you Jesus do that in our hearts today Whatever cost, we choose to love Jesus Christ and live our lifestyle in obedience to his living word, letting his Holy Spirit sanctify our hearts and our decisions. Jesus, search our hearts, we pray, and make us a committed people. Take out the Judas in each one of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.